Good morning. Welcome back to Meathead Hippie Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Schramm, a meathead hippie, like hopefully some of you listening. I am a personal trainer, nutritional therapy practitioner, and entrepreneur helping you empower yourself. And I do that by ways of online programs, strength programs, 21-day challenges, my backpack turned weight training bag, my MPAC, herbal tea company, Element Tea, and the Body Awareness Project, which is my favorite new collection about to happen and about to launch. So stay tuned on this podcast intro or through my private Facebook group uh, or through my own Instagram at Emily Schramm. I love seeing you guys tag either at Meathead Hippie, which we finally got a social account for, or at Emily Schramm when we do uh, have, you know, anytime I see somebody listening to my podcast, it just brings me a lot of joy. So thank you, thank you, thank you. My love language is definitely words of affirmation and acts of service. And I feel like that does both because one, I'm like, oh, people are listening. And two, I'm like, oh, and they're sharing. <laughs> um, I think you're going to really love today's podcast. It's full of tangents, but the gluten-free bread and butter is, or gluten-free bread and ghee of this podcast was this desire to have a conversation with Bobby Gill of Savory Institute about these meat alternatives what that means for our health and for the environment. Is eating something like Impossible Burger better than eating a steak? Is something like Beyond Meat actually a better source of protein or is it better for the world we live in? Um, and I think it's a really important conversation to have. I think it's the question I get quite a bit. Uh, it's just important and it's hard because we want um, we need to pick and choose, but we also, first and foremost, just need to be educated. And that's what this podcast is about. You're going to learn a lot of really fun, random things I'm into. Um, you're going to learn some new books to read, uh, some <laughs> some things to go watch. It's just, you know, if you can, get a pen and paper and just start writing some stuff down. I think you're going to really love it. So huge thank you to Bobby Gill and Savory Institute and people like White Oak Pastures doing the work that they're doing. And without further ado, enjoy the show. What's up, everybody? We are back with another Hippie podcast, and I just hit record. So you're going to jump right into Bobby and I's conversation. I have Bobby Gill back on the podcast. We had a podcast on the rooftop not that long ago. I have no idea. Was it a year ago? Maybe. Actually, right after the gym opened, so almost yeah, a year. that sounds about right. And we had so many good things to talk about, but the topic that we're going to talk about most, actually, who knows where <laughs> we will go. Because I always go off on tangents, so I think we, Same. we decided to have a part two because of this one issue with, you know, the the plant-based proteins and kind of how regenerative Possible agriculture, beyond meat. yeah, how all that stuff fits together in the life cycle analyses, talking about the data. But I feel like there's a lot more that you and I always talk yes. about. And I, it's so good because that's, and I, you know, for my listeners, they know this, but I took a month off podcasting and it was the best thing ever because I was like, okay, what do I miss? Reevaluating everything in my life. What do I truly love. And sometimes you can't do that until you take that step back. And that's mm -hmm. why I think those times away are the most enlightening because they're not necessarily for you to reboot and refresh. They're mm -hmm. for you to understand when you come back to it, do I still have the same excitement that I had when I, my head mm -hmm. was down and I was just doing and Absence grinding. makes the heart grow stronger. Or it goes the opposite way and you're like, right. I got to cut It gives you clarity. <laughs> it gives yeah. you clarity. It gives you clarity. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, 
so happy and thrilled to realize how much my love for podcasting has grown. Um, <laughs> so Meathead Hippie shall continue. And I think that you were, we, I hit record because we were going down a Michael Pollan rant, and I think that everyone should listen to this. So <laughs> continue about your uh, Michael Pollan rant, one of my favorite people in the world. If you guys aren't familiar with him, the perfect place to start is simply on Netflix with his cook series. Mm -hmm. Really good four-part series about just typical ways of cooking and traditional versus processed mm -hmm. versus all the things that we kind of, you know, hear back and forth. This is bad. This is good. It just takes all that away and allows you to, to just see fact, which yeah. I think is what Michael Pollan is so good mm -hmm. at. So your first book of his. Yeah, so I, so I work in regenerative agriculture. I'm with the Savory Institute. You know, we teach farmers and ranchers how to graze properly. You know, we work with grass-fed beef brands all around the world. But I got into all of this. I, I think I told my backstory on the last podcast, but really it was reading Michael Pollan's Omnivore's Dilemma. You know, that really opened my eyes to all the nuance that exists in the agricultural space and the value of true food production and what it's doing to the environment, what it's doing for us in terms of like human and planetary nutrition. And so that really brought me on my current career track. And then Em and I were just talking about how, uh, what was it? I think last summer I was in Zimbabwe and I read Michael Pollan's latest book, which is called How to Change Your Mind. Mm -hmm. And it's all about plant med medicines, also known as psychedelics. And I wanted to hit record because we just had this great event in uh, the gym downstairs where we were talking about recovery and sleep and how to make sure that people are doing it correctly. And it came down to what are some of the, of the things that are really becoming a big part of this sleep and recovery talk and the mm -hmm. biggest one being CBD. Yeah. But how powerful CBD attached in its whole extract mm -hmm. versus taking it apart. And I said this, I was like, I truly believe plant medicine is smarter than human intelligence. Yeah. It, and when we try to divide and separate, whether it's the curcumin from the turmeric mm -hmm. or whether it is the CBD from full, fully taking it away from THC so that it can't be drug testable, yeah. that there shouldn't, you shouldn't feel that much of an effect because it, you are taking away the plant's intelligence. Yeah. Well, it's funny because in the Savory Institute, what we teach is called holistic management. And what we're doing is we're teaching people how to graze using that holistic mindset. We, I think, as human beings, want to understand things and think of it as a machine that we can dissect into its individual parts and break it down and understand all the individual parts. Yeah. And that works in technology and mechanical things. It works in chemistry. It works in all these different arenas, except for biology. In biology, it is infinitely complex. We will never understand everything that is happening in biology. And so for us as humans to, to come across and say, well, we, we understand everything that there is, and so therefore we're going to dominate and take control, and it's a war with nature, and you know, all we got to do is replace this thing, and this is the only important piece. Mm -hmm. It's human hubris that's getting in the way. And so there's a difference between how you manage complicated systems and how you manage complex systems. Complicated, you can understand the individual parts like a machine. Complex systems like biology, we will never understand the full complexity, and so we just need to honor that. And the way that we manage them are differently. You need to respect the whole and take that holistic perspective and you know, understand that things are interconnected and they work with one another. And, and there's we're not going to always understand Exactly. That. So when you try to isolate the individual nutrient out of it and take it out, 
like, yeah, you might be getting some benefit there, but you're probably missing a lot more. Well, the one thing that kind of ties into what we're going to talk about anyway, and this was something that I was kind of shocked how many people didn't know this, and, and not in a judging way, but in a way of like, I need to be better at communicating this, is when you look at, you know, certain number of grams on a protein label, mm -hmm. and this could be something as simple as, I want a post-workout shake, but I don't want something with dairy. So my only alternative until I found the beef protein isolate mm -hmm. from Equip was, uh, okay, if I can't find you know, dairy or beef or whatever it is, it's a vegan. Mm -hmm. So if it says 25 grams of protein on the label of a vegan protein, the amount that's actually absorbed is mm -hmm. so minimal. It's when you look at the biological value or the BV, mm -hmm. you're looking at the difference of with whey and beef protein, 80 to 90% versus something like pea protein, which is maybe 40% to rice protein, 30% to 20%. And you're saying, oh my God, I have to have three times this. It's not saying take three scoops. Yeah. It's saying you have to understand the way our body digests and assimilates is not as simple as a nutrition label. Absolutely. And that's yeah. a perfect leeway to kind of what my biggest question has been. And I mo mostly not really on social as much because maybe people kind of know, but just in day-to-day -day life, like my grandma, my grandpa, my aunts, my uncle, it's like the amount of people that are curious about this new wave of the Impossible Burger or mm. Beyond Meat and the fact that it's an option must mean that it's healthier and it's kind of this wave of, oh, wow, this must be a better option because I know that meat is bad for the environment. So I just think that that conversation needs to be had and I didn't want to have it with anybody but you. <laughs> <laughs> so let's oh. start there because we just, you know, maybe it's good to kind of talk about the study that just came out. Let's yeah. start with that. Yeah. So let's see where to begin. So Savory Institute, we work with farmers and ranchers and even pastoralist communities like the Maasai. Actually, I just got back from Kenya working with the Maasai two weeks ago. Um, we work we, with I want to talk about. Okay. By the way, we'll we'll put a pin on that and we'll we'll, we'll come, come back to Kenya. Cool. Um, we'll we'll travel the globe on this journey. <laughs> um, so, anyways, we work with farmers and ranchers and pastoralists around the world teaching them how to be better stewards of the land with how they manage the grazing of their animals. Um, you know, grasslands and grazing animals co-evolved with each other for, you know, millions of years before humans came along and kind of screwed everything up. Mm -hmm. And now with our industrial age, with how we have food production and agriculture, the shit is hitting the fan. You know, the way we are treating our environment is just extract, extract, extract. Um, and we're coming to the point where, you know, the, the FAO, the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization said we have, at our current rate of soil loss, based on our current practices, we have less than 60 harvests left. So less than 60 years of food production left, Holy based on how we're treating our planet. And that's not the beef, that's how we're like raising our crops. When we raise these huge, mo huge monocultures of just a single crop, and there's all that bare ground in between, when wind or floods or whatever comes through and it wipes all that away, that's kind of the current status of how we're treating our land. We're just, we're just extracting, extracting, take, 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 and we're not giving anything back. So we teach people how to graze in a way, farming in nature's image, that gives more back to the land than you take out from it. It's really the only hope we have towards having not even food production, but a livable planet into the future. Um, so, you know, we've been doing this since Alan Savory started developing holistic management in the 60s, and now it's grown into this global network. We have influenced you know, 
25 million acres around the world. We've trained 8,000 farmers, and we've got 43 hubs that are doing this. Um, but people always say, like, well, I've, I've heard that livestock are, are destroying the planet. Like, you, you said your, your grandparents know, quote unquote, that livestock are a problem. And that's what we've been taught. But livestock are a tool, just like a hammer is a tool. A hammer is neither good nor bad. It depends on how you use it. You can use it to build a house, and that's good. You can use it to knock someone upside the head and steal their wallet. That's bad. <laughs> Unless you really need the money. But <laughs> the, the same thing is true with livestock. They are neither good nor bad. It's how you use them. And livestock existed in healthy balance on this planet for, for so long, and the planet was fine until we started mismanaging them. Which wasn't that long ago. It wasn't, no. That, that's what's kind of baffling to me is how quickly we have rape and pillage the earth. Yeah. That's how I feel about yeah. it. it. It's like, how can we go from having very little technology and then all of a sudden, within a hundred years, mm -hmm. do as much damage as we've done. Well, you could even look back and go as far back as the agricultural revolution eight to 10,000 years ago. I mean, yeah. Homo sapiens, we've been on this planet, we evolved around two million years ago. Mm -hmm. And so two million years is the, the, the large picture. 10,000 years ago is when we started domesticating ourselves and animals and plants and started having cities and all of that. So that's agricultural community revolution, and community. Yep. And then the Industrial Revolution, you know, 100, 200 years ago. So, you know, you look at the last 100 or 200 years, that's just a blink of an eye. We are not evolutionarily adapted to the things that have come out in that period of time. There hasn't been the appropriate evolutionary pressure. Same thing with how we treat the planet. The planet is not evolutionarily adapted to the way that we are treating it. To have this industrial mindset of take, take, take and spraying glyphosate and just like you know, having cities and roads, you know, the patterns and the ways in which things exist, the symbiotic relationships between plants and animals and, and beings, it, they have been totally screwed up. And part of me is like fascinated by it because as humans, unless we are, what I have found is when somebody says they're not creative or they feel like they have never been creative, it's just, it's just how they've been raised or it's just the yeah. story that they tell themselves because we as humans are creators. Mm -hmm. We all have this crazy progressive mind that's innovating and figuring out problems and that's what makes us different. Well, not that much different, but in some ways different than any other animal that exists. But what's so interesting is, so it's, we're not flawed for it. We're just innovating. We're mm -hmm. And when, once we have the technology that we innovated on our side, the innovation, it becomes a little overwhelming yeah. like to the sense of listening to bob lazar and mm -hmm. joe rogan being like we're so effed like there's like are we just tools of aliens but, and that's like a different <laughs> rabbit hole but like seriously it's this crazy we don't want to stop innovating and creating and technology has been so powerful but it is so important and the first time i really saw this and i know you guys have done this and i can't wait to finally go to the ranch at savory institute but with um herb farm being like they have been in the, you know, for, for 40 years, they mm -hmm. have been the herbs that are saying, we're going to grow them here. Yeah. We're going to grow up to 70 of our own herbs on our own farm, which means that some land has to be rocky. Some land has to be really wet. Mm -hmm. Some land has to be shaded. We're pretending like this is a 
multi-dimensional climate. Yeah. That Which used to be the environment. You would mm -hmm. go around and forage for those sort of things based on what the ecosystem had around. Yes. And what you'd find here in Colorado would be different from what you found on the coast where they have year-round moisture. For which sure. is different from the tropics, which is different. Like, there's so like many different seasonal e eating is a yeah. thing for yeah. a reason because yeah. it was only there in season and we didn't have transportation to get whatever it was that wasn't mm -hmm. out of season. And so they've recreated this place where, okay, this is our place where we're going to grow black cohosh, shady, slightly moist, takes a lot of time. But then all of a sudden you're like, wait, you after four years, after five years of growing the same thing, you can't keep doing that. And so they have to rotate. And mm -hmm. it's incredible. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is, this is in real time what Bobby and I were talking about, where I've never been able to see it. Because I felt, you know how like as humans, unless we see it right in yeah. our face, yeah, we you can't think about it, it, and you're like, all right, conceptually, I understand that. But then you you feel it, you experience it, you see it, and you're like, oh, it it ingrains itself within you. It comes to a different point of understanding. And the understanding was they chose land over profit. Yes, they chose to say, we know that for the land, this will in like it's such a long term versus short-term return. Oh, yeah. And that is the issue. It's how fast can we turn this yeah. around without any respect towards the land that it's on. And yeah. that goes for corn, soy, wheat. It goes for dairy products yeah. and the cows well, and the meat that we eat. It, it's back to that reductionist mindset of take, take, take with no thought or consideration of what the long-term effects are. It's all about the short-term gains at at the expense of long-term health, both for the person and for the planet. And is it just, does that simply come <clears throat> down to money? Does that simply come down to profit? If I am here this year, if I said, that if there's only one cause and effect of the reason this has gotten to the point, to me it's like because the person that was there, were, they were looking out just for them and they wanted to have the highest return. Generally, yeah, I think so. There's, I mean, as humans, we generally think, um, Many people have this scarcity mindset where there is not enough to go around. And so therefore, if you don't, if I don't get it, you're going to get it. Mm -hmm. And so that's why everything is take, 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 you know, just like hold as, you know, accumulate as much wealth and things and materials as you can because there's not enough to go around. And so there's this scarcity mindset. But the reality is, is there is, we have so many resources. The earth is capable of giving us so much if we manage it properly that we really should be having abundance mindsets. We need to yes. shift from this scarcity mindset to an abundance mindset. And in doing so, people become better stewards of the land. They become better stewards of their own personal health, of their communities, et cetera, when they realize that a rising tide lifts all boats. Like, you shouldn't try to get out, you know, get one over your fellow man. Like, that is the absolute wrong way of going about life. This is the so absolute perfect wrong way. because we just talked about this with Lauren in my last podcast mm -hmm. of the difference between certain female animals, mm -hmm. lions, lionesses, and wolves, and how different they are. And it all comes down to they have abundance or scarcity mindset. And I get it because it's survival. So I've been on this. I'm so glad you mentioned this. I'm going to go on a total tangent. Have you heard of the Minnesota semi-starvation starvation experiment? No, this is this is like so, a fasting thing? Yes, but okay. it's not like the fasting we have talked about in the past okay. of like for benefits and – this is like there is a war, World War II, 1945. Wait, is this a real thing or this, this is, is so real. hypothetical? This, this is, is real. so fascinating. Okay. So I only know one thing about Ansel Keys. He's a researcher. Mm -hmm. He Seven, basically screwed us study. over. Yep. 
as saying fat caused heart disease and cholesterol. I'm not saying he's a bad person. No, but you can say that he cherry-picked his data. He cherry-picked his data, and he caused a lot of angst yeah. for people to finally say, eating fat does not make me fat. Eating fat does not raise my cholesterol. Eating mm -hmm. fat does not directly impact my heart, heart health. That's still a battle that we're all trying to win. That's the only thing I knew about We Ansel are winning. Keys. We are Those, winning. That, that is crumbling. Like that hypothesis is slowly fading away. God, but not, not quickly God. enough. Not quickly enough. Yes. Because think of how much damage is done metabolically after mm -hmm. one year, after yeah. three months of not having good fat, let alone one year or let alone, let alone 10 years. And then people wonder why they have so many chronic health issues. Well, because your cells haven't been nurtured. And mm -hmm. so we're reversing and we're trying to do the same thing we're doing with the land. But I was so fascinated because there's a really great, I think the best place to start was it was Hidden Brain, one of my mm -hmm. favorite podcasts. Love that. Shankar Verdantum. Mm, so, so great. Good. So he started talking about, I heard him say Ansel Keys. Actually, maybe I just Googled it. And I was like, Ansel Keys did more than demonize fat. I have to know everything. <laughs> so we went down this whole rabbit hole. This is yesterday. Oh, I was on my way home from the mountains. And I was like, what else did Ansel Keys do? Because he can't inherently be a bad person, mm -hmm. right? Maybe he is. Maybe I'm just curious what else he's put out there. And he did this incredible study um, called the Minnesota Semi-Starvation Experiment. Right after World War II um, had started and people were understanding how many Holocaust victims there were and how many mm -hmm. people were starving, they decided they were like, oh my gosh, we have to understand how to refeed the population. So we're going to do a study in Minnesota, an, a year study, mm -hmm. 12 weeks controlled, standard diet with uh, 38 men, healthy men, but just this is the standard, don't let them lose weight get them on a control, six months of extreme, they call it semi-starvation, but this basically the guy speaking about it went from 3,500 calories to maintain his weight mm -hmm. to 1,500 calories and did it for six months. Wow. And then a refeed to see how they incorporated it, how did it, how did their weight gain back, how did their mental you know, component go. And the, it was all about the scarcity complex when you truly are mm -hmm. – in starvation mode, you don't have hunger, where does your focus go? It's straight tunnel vision. Yeah. And it was incredible to see, not only do you have tunnel vision with all I can think about is food and my hormones are off and my energy is off and I don't want to think about anything else, but the recovery from that was, it was it took him, I think, a total of five years to even, wow. he went up to 225 and then he dropped back down and he mm. was always carrying candy in his pocket. Yeah. He was like, no matter what I did, I, I felt like my stomach could not hold enough. Yeah. It was this. Because he went through a traumatic process and yes. he was conditioned to have that scarcity mindset of like, I need to get every calorie I can because there's not enough available. And then what, what are you going to think about how to grow your business in a creative yeah. way or from a space of love? Are you going to think about how to connect with humans when all you care about is connecting hunger <laughs> away from your yeah. body? You know, it's like this incredible process of we tend to just undermine like these real beliefs of money, food, you know, health, sickness. They at our core, change who we are Absolutely. and you can't see anything else. And so of course it's like, we, you know, when you're in that space, you don't even know you're in that space. So I highly suggest listening to that. Mm, that's fascinating. It I was, dive in. I'll send you the documentary. It was 20 minutes. I found oh, it. On, cool. You can't find it on, um, I couldn't find it. If you YouTube that you'll get the worst stuff. Yeah. It's basically everyone's story of it versus their story of it. So mm -hmm. I will send you so, that. So you're saying that the takeaway of that is Ansel Keys has some bad qualities, but then he also <laughs> did this one study. So Ansel Keys as a tool 
is neither good nor bad. <laughs> he is the hammer, right? So, or we can great. just say he's a tool. That was great. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but it was cool because then it was. I mean, it was kind of sad because the world when the the study wasn't over until the war was over mm -hmm. after Germany and Japan surrendered. So it was this interesting thing of saying, well what have we learned? And they were like, all we've learned is that these guys have no sex drive. They have no energy. All they do is talk about food. When they go to the movies, they don't want to see anything except the dinners that mm -hmm. people are eating. They cut out magazines of food. You become obsessed with it, just like we become obsessed with anything that we are feeling like we're lacking or maybe are lacking. Yeah, it's interesting that that came about during World War II because that's also the time when we started genetically modifying crops and started, or that's when we came out with fertilizer. Oh, yeah. So when we came out with NPK as an amendment to put on our soils to grow crops because it was leftover ammunition for making bombs. Yeah. And so- And clearing we, out forests. Yeah, right? so we basically came from this war in which the resources were limited, scarcity mindset. We had to come up and innovate with new ways of producing food to feed this growing population. And in doing so, we took the reductionist mindset. We created something saying, oh, all that matters for soil health for growing crops is nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Okay, let's put NPK together. Let's add it onto the soils. Lo and behold, they grow. But now as time has gone on, that has kind of run rampant. It's caused ecological devastation towards our planet and we realize that there's so much more happening in the soil. For example, the soil microbiology, that when you apply these fertilizers, you're killing them off. Uh, or sorry, not the fertilizers, but when you spray glyphosate and Roundup and those sort of things, that kills off the soil microbiology. Um, so it's interesting that- And then it that, goes back into the plants into yeah, our body. Yeah, so it's interesting that at a time of trauma, that scarcity mindset comes in, and then it just has these ripple effects that last for so long yeah. and caused so much damage. And that's the point. It's saying because they, they needed use for it. They had something. So let's make a profit out of it. It yeah. was not, we are no longer in this space. And I will say this is so many more tangents, but, and we'll get back to carbon back in the soil <laughs> soon, I promise. But Whatever. it was really this issue of when you look at Denver and when you look at people moving here, this influx and this booming society that we like it's crazy yeah. in five years what we live in right now rhino five point city park just a different place oh it's insane uh the traffic is different everything is different the it's and i think a lot of places could say this austin san diego la i don't even know how any, LA any major growing. metropolitan area i think is experiencing this and i think uh, largely in part is that we um we value city life and urban areas and we don't this ties back into agriculture. I think we have a disconnection from where our food comes from. And so we devalue rural areas. You know, when you fly from DC to LA, you know, people call everything that you fly over flyover states because it's like, oh, those don't matter. How disrespectful That's is that? From to call? I know. Missouri and so represent. And, and so many people <laughs> are from these places and they are hardworking, you know, value driven individuals. But people on the coasts, you know, where most of our large metropolitan areas are, most of them are in coastal areas where there's year-round moisture so you can grow food all the time. You know, you're not in these areas like, I mean, Denver's kind of an exception. But we have this disconnect from the, the rural America. And because of that, rural America is struggling. And everyone, even, you know, if they grew up in a farming culture, they're like, well, I want a better life for my kids than I had. So I want to make sure you go to college and then you're going to go and get a good city job. 
And then what happens? No one's left to take over the farm. The, these cities are just seeing this loss of people and they're just struggling to get by. Mm. And, and it's interesting it's, too, because, go ahead. Oh, no, I was saying, and because of that, rural America is struggling because they have no one. And then our urban centers are just packed with people because that's where everyone wants to go because, you know, we've been shown that like, this is where all the opportunity is. This is where the excitement is. Like we always go to the shiny thing. Yeah. And, well, and we go to convenience and life out in the country is harder, but there's value in that. Like when you put in that hard work. And so I think we're seeing the effects of that urban sprawl the right separation. there. Or the separation. Well, yeah. is there, I guess I had eight tangents in that sentence, <laughs> so I'm going to try to make these make sense. But is there even money in agriculture anymore? Because how many people, I listened to that great podcast with Rich Roll. Who is it with, with a really understanding if you're not un, like really confident or can't speak to about Roundup being in our plants and what it's done and where it came from. Mm -hmm. That's a great podcast. Was it with Dr. Zach Bush? Yes. Okay. Yes. Thank yeah, you. Great. Yeah. We work with him. He's uh, good. And money in agriculture for me is like, okay, well, it, does that even exist? So I don't, you know, I, well, I'm it not depends on what form of agriculture you're practicing. If you are practicing conventional agriculture, you know, you're planting wheat, soy, corn, etc. You are most likely in massive, massive, massive debt to the banks because you have bought, you know, a half million dollar combine and tractors and all the seed. And the you land. don't actually control it. Right. Yeah. It, it's indentured servitude, essentially. You're, you're a slave to the system. You are not truly making decisions because the large industrial agribusiness has such vast control over everything that is needed and the requirements and they control the pricing. So those that are doing more conventional farming are often getting by on razor thin margins. And that's why you see the suicide rates in farmers being insanely high. Like it's one of the highest suicide rates out there is among the farming population. <sighs> now that's not all farming. Uh, the, the stuff that we practice, regenerative agriculture or holistic plant grazing um, is what we call, what we teach. Um, if you're out there grazing animals in a way such that over time you grow more grass on that same piece of land, that allows you to carry more animals on that same piece of land. When you carry more animals, that means you can make more money on that same piece of land. Mm -hmm. So we often find that when people go from conventional practices or even a traditional, quote, rotational grazing scheme over towards holistic planned grazing, which we see as the gold standard of grazing, uh, people will at least double their profits because they're going to be making decisions where they decrease the amount of feed that they're giving their animals in terms of like the hay and silage and stuff that you have to bring in over the winter because you're going to be planning a bit more intentionally so that you can get uh, better productivity off of your land. So you've got decreased input costs plus increased um, uh, value that's derived from raising more animals. And so we see people at least 2x their profits. I mean, you know, the study that you had, I think you asked about maybe like 20 minutes ago that we'll get into, uh, Will Harris from White Oak Pastures, I know that he has turned around his operation out there. He was a conventional farmer, has been he's a fourth generation, you know, he had been doing things the conventional way of just kind of continuous grazing, bringing in feed, whatever it was. He adopted holistic management, he switched things over to 100% grass fed, and in doing so, he went from four employees that were making minimum wage to now he employs, I believe it's over 150 people wow. that are making double the county average. He's raising 10 types of animals. He's got all different types of business units. Um, you know, like if you buy grass-fed beef from Whole Foods on the East Coast, you likely are buying White Oak Pastures. If you buy products from Epic, 
you are most likely buying white oak pasture. It's like he is just flourishing. I love that. Because he switched from that scarcity mindset of this is how you got to graze and I got to get as much profit yeah. out of this as possible to how can I think holistically? And in mm. doing so, it's been better for him. It's been better for his community. You know, he's employing all these people. He's now like buying the old post office building and the old, uh, you know, it, all these old dilapidated buildings and turning them into like their offices and the general store and the restaurant, all this stuff. And it's beautiful well, and incredible what a lesson, to see. Because I think the thing that we so, if we feel stuck in this is that, like I choose passion over paycheck. Yeah. And I think this goes for any industry and I'm not saying change the way you do it and that will flip, but there is, I, I think the people that are doing the hardest work are so undervalued in our society. Mm -hmm. And that's just our, that's like our founding, founding principles as a country. Like that's what's so frustrating is that the things that matter the most are the most uh, walked on because they're just going to always be there. And yeah. so it's so, it, you see it in everything, but what a beautiful story yeah. of it. Because well, and like, I think in Will's scenario that shows that, you know, passion over paycheck, it doesn't have to be one or the other. Yes. Like it's not that you're sacrificing, um, you know, economic potential down the road. It's that doing the right thing will lead to better outcomes. And it, you are generating value in more ways than you know if you do the right thing. And plus, like, how how freaking amazing is that, the, yeah. the study? So let's get yeah. into the study. So <laughs> to continue on with Will Harris of White Oak Pastures, which if anyone is unfamiliar with him, go on to Google and look, actually go to Vimeo. There's a video, it's like 15 or 20 minutes long. I'll link it it's in called the notes below. It's called 100,000 Beating Hearts. And it tells the story of White Oak Pastures. And it is so beautiful and so incredible. And Will is one of my favorite people in the world. He's actually providing all the meat for my wedding next month. So oh. shout out to White Oak. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I need to go. I, I got an invite to go, so I'm going to try to make it happen. You should. Yeah. I, I will go with you. Let's do I will it. show you because okay. Will, Will and I have closed down so many hotel bars at conferences. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do He's it. He's a good man. He's a good man. Um, <laughs> as is everyone else there. And as is everyone. I mean, I'm. I'm singling out Will because uh, they're the ones that did the life cycle analysis that we're going to talk about. But he is just one example of many that are in this global network that Savory uh, deals with, you know, 43 of them around the world, like I said. Um, anyways, White Oak Pastures did a life cycle analysis on all of the greenhouse gases going into and out of their farming operation. I think I had mentioned they raise 10 different types of animals, so they raise cows and goats and sheep and hogs and chickens and guineas and turkeys and ducks and I'm missing two. I don't know. Anyways, he's got a lot. Um, and they've got a vegetable garden. They've got a restaurant. They've got on-site processing. Um, they, everything has a place. There is no waste. It's all working symbiotically. They've got leather working, like everything. It's awesome how they've thought holistically to make everything work together. So, to show those that say, well, livestock are killing the planet. They did a full life cycle analysis through this third-party verification company uh, called Qantas International. And Qantas came in and studied everything, you know, and they, were they, they scrutinized the crap out of everything. This wasn't White Oak giving numbers. This was Qantas coming in and, and you know, Evaluating. showing. Yeah, truly what's happening. They were third-party, you know, they had no, um, you know, they had no stake in this. So Which they, is so important, by the way. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen very often. Yes, that's true. Let's just say that. As Question a little... everything that comes in front of you. Look for bias. 
There always is bias. Oh, there's so much bias. I mean, confirmation bias. Have you ever read um, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman? Oh, that is on my list. Thank read you for that reminding book. me. Oh, okay. I love that book so much. Okay. He, he talks Thank about you. our different thought processes and how we have this very quick thinking that's very, um, you know, reactionary, but then we have our slow, deliberate thinking, which is where we, you know, we see the true insights. But he also, because um, he's an economist and, you know, gets into the psychology of things, he dives into the various biases that exist when we make decisions, like the sunk cost bias. It's like, well, I've been doing this thing and I've sunk so many, so much time or money or whatever into this business relationship project, et cetera, that I might as well see it through when you know it's not the right decision. And so that's the sunk cost bias. There's also confirmation bias where you're looking for data that confirms your preconceived notions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Anyways, that's another tangent, another book. I love it, okay. Thinking Fast and Slow, Daniel Kahneman. Um, so third party, no bias in this. Qantas comes out, evaluates what's happening for all the net emissions in and out of white oak pastures. And they compared this to other types of proteins like conventional beef, pork, chicken, soybeans. They even looked at Beyond Meat and the Impossible Burger. Bum, bum, bum. Because that's really what everyone's that's focusing everyone's on right focused. now. And the stock is insane. The, the Beyond stock Meat, I, I was looking things. at Beyond Meat's stock this morning. I think they IPO'd somewhere around like 60 or 70 bucks. And right now it's like around 170, I want to say. So this goes to show you where all the investment is coming from. Yeah. Bill Gates is an investor in both Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger. <sighs> Um, anyways, this life cycle analysis, it showed that conventional beef is the worst thing out there. You know, when you just buy your standard run-of-the-mill ground beef or steak from the grocery store that's grain-fed, you know, so it lives its life, the first part of its life, all, all cows start their life on grass. That's great. How they're managed on that grass depends. So if they are moved around in a holistic management sort of scheme, that can be wonderful for that beginning portion of their life. If they are just continually grazing out on a pasture and they're not being moved around according to a plan, they're gonna overgraze certain grasses, they're gonna undergraze others, the land is eventually gonna have more bare ground, which is gonna leach CO2 out into the atmosphere. That's not good. It eventually causes grassland to turn into desert. We call it desertification. Which is what's happening. Yeah, up to 70% of our global grasslands are desertifying according to some estimates. Wow. 70%. And grasslands are one-third of our Earth's terrestrial surface. Wow. We have 5 billion hectares of grasslands on this planet, and up to 70% of them are turning to desert. 5 billion. What did you call them? Hectares. Sorry, we, we deal, we, we work globally. It's the metric version of acres. It's 2.5 acres. Okay. So we work globally. It's like a so. under the sea <laughs> for farmers. Sure. Why not? Yeah, sorry. Since we... We're headquartered in the U.S. here in Colorado, but then we work globally. Hectares. When I'm talking to folks in the U.S., I normally say acres. When I talk to folks globally, I normally say hectares because that's I've kind never of... never heard it. The rest of the world uses hectares. Okay. I've learned a new word. And there how you do you spell it? H-E-C-T-A-R-E-S. I'm too much of a yeah. visual. Okay. Some people incorrectly say it as hectares. Yes. That's, that's incorrect. It's hectares. Okay. Hectares. Yeah. Anyways, we got 5 billion hectares. So that's that like 12 million acres of grass uh, or f 12 billion of grasslands. of grasslands on the world. And that's, you know, that's the American West. That's the Pampas in Argentina and Brazil and Uruguay. That's the Sahel of Africa. That's the Mongolian steppe. That's, you know, parts of Australia. We've got grasslands everywhere. And it looks different in every context. 
but all of that grassland needs to be grazed properly with animals moving about. Think of herds of wild bison that existed in North America. Yeah. They would urinate and dung to fertilize the soil. They were kept in tightly bunched herds because of their natural predators, the, the gray wolves in many contexts. And so they would move along to the next piece of grass after they were done grazing, and they wouldn't return until that, gra that piece of grass had fully regrown. Not just had the grass fully regrown, but had the root structure down below in the soil fully regrown as well. And, and so what ha and just as a consequence of like what happens when it becomes de desertified, mm -hmm. is that what the yeah. right term is? How long does it take for, is, it, is there any return? Has, have they been able to rehabilitate something yeah. that's already been that way? Yeah, we've got a lot of projects going on where we're trying to re-green you know, re deserts. I mean, if it's something that's truly a desert, it is inhospitable towards vegetative matter growing on it, like, good luck trying to get anything to grow there. But if it's a piece of grassland that, that has turned. been mismanaged and turned to grassland, or that turned to desert, I mean, think about our national parks. Look at our national parks and what most of them look like. Mm -hmm. It's mostly bare ground. You know, there's not a lot of green matter out there. There's no grazing animals out there. And we see, I mean, for example, out in Zimbabwe, Alan Savory has a, a ranch right next to the Zambezi National Park. And I can actually show you pictures of this if you want to put this in the show notes. The Zambezi National Park, it's, you know, standard operation. You know, there's the, the natural wildlife, but they don't have herds of animals in the correct numbers. You know, we see lions. Did I see lions? Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. I'll show you a picture I have of Shut a lion in a tree Shut up. hunting out on uh, the Mara. It's Ugh. so cool. Um, I'm going to get distracted like trying. Is it the month of lion? Yeah, it's August. And it's the year of the lion for me. And, and I took oh that photo God. of a lion. You guys, I'm going to post this. this <laughs> okay, so I'll send you this photo. <laughs> Holy shit. I think it's the, my favorite photo I've ever seen. I'm seriously. So August yeah. 8th is my favorite day. 8-8. Eight, eight. It's on Thursday, so the day after oh. this podcast. And I ha I'm going to go see lions. That's what I'm doing. I'm going to the wild animal sanctuary. Are you going to go watch the new Lion King movie as well? Oh, I already did. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> of course I already did. And of course I cried. I have so much to say. Okay, so the grasslands in oh God. we I, I think Zimbabwe. we just went down like five levels of rabbit hole. I feel like I'm in the movie Inception right now, and I'm trying to go back up a level, and I'm like, fuck. I hope everyone is listening, like is following, but because this is how my brain works. So please Same. bear with us. This is important stuff. Back yeah. to the we grasslands. We should have like a moderator when we talk to like keep us on track. We got this, Bobby. No, we're, I'm bringing us back. Right, Zimbabwe fuck. grasslands. Zambezi National Park in Zimbabwe. There are no livestock in tightly bunched herds regularly moving around like existed before humans came along. So the land is desolate. It's bare. There's not a lot of grass. The animals are kind of frail. They're all like, where's the food? Where's the grass? I don't know. Then you look at Alan Savory's ranch, which is like 20 minutes down the road. Grass is taller than you can stand. Like above your head, grass so thick. It's insane, the difference. And it's the same environment, the same soils, the same climate. Everything is the same. The only thing that's different is how they manage it. Yeah. Alan has been practicing holistic management on there for decades, moving herds of cattle and goats around on there, using them as a tool for regenerating the landscape. It's this insane night and day difference on what's possible. And we see the same things in our national parks out there. They yeah. look exactly like the Zambezi National Park. And so I know what's possible in terms of what we could be doing. And it's because they're keeping the animals in this confined space because that, that is the park and the, that's their food source? No, it's, it's that it's just wide open. There, there aren't. So before humans came about, we had more grazing animals and more predators. It kept the grazing animals tightly bunched in herds 
and regularly moving. In doing so, you're getting the fertilization from the animals, but you're also getting what we call animal impact. Their hooves are kind of prepping the, the soil for the seed bed to, so then the water can infil, infiltrate better, the, the new grass can grow. So there's two things. There's the amount of animal impact. You know, how tight is the herd and how long are they on that piece of land? And then how much recovery do you give to that land? It's kind of like how hard of a workout are you doing and then how much recovery do you need after that workout? It's the same thing. It's, the, it's a hormetic stressor on a biological system, and in doing so, you get stronger because of it. And how would a national park even give recovery? You, you move the animals in a grazing plan. Got it. So you, you tightly bunch and, and move them according to a grazing plan, and by moving them, it gets them off that piece of land after that intense grazing, and then it gives it time to recover. And, and so oftentimes in, yeah. in these scenarios, when people are out grazing, they'll come back to the same pasture once, maybe twice a year. If you're in an area like Will is in Georgia, where they've got year-round moisture and it's warmer, they'll probably revisit it a few more times because the grass is growing quicker and it's recovering faster. Um, but that's what we teach people how to plan. We teach them to monitor the recovery rates and yeah. all that sort of stuff. Um, so anyways, I think where I came from with this was I was talking about the life cycle analysis and conventional beef. Conventional beef starts its life on grass. That can either be good or bad depending on how it's managed. If it's in a continuous grazing operation, it's going to cause problems. If they're moving around according to a plan, they're going to regenerate that. It's great. It's different than like our first podcast, restorative is different than regenerative. I think restorative is getting something back to a place that it was before, regenerative is continually giving back into the ecosystem, into the system that you're talking about. Okay. Um, so you're, you're giving more than you take. Um, Which we have to do. Yeah, we don't just point. need to restore the planet. We just, we need to take care of it. We need to regenerate it back, yeah. to, back to health. Because if and not, beyond. we're all fucked. Yeah, well, we've got a growing population. I mean, we've got 8 billion people. You know, we're on track to reach 10, I think, by the year... Oh, God, I don't know the statistics, so I'm not going to quote it, but like 2050 or something, you know, the population is growing at an insane rate. Mm -hmm. So when people are like, well, can you feed a growing planet with X? I'm like, we can't feed a growing planet, period. <laughs> the way that we are growing food is unsustainable, as evidenced by that quote I said earlier, 60 years of food production left. What we're doing now is not sustainable. So we can't just have sustainable agriculture because that's maintaining the status quo. We need to have regenerative agriculture. Putting carbon back into Not just the even earth. carbon. It's restoring wildlife habitat. It's improving the water holding capacity of land. There's so much more that land does for us besides produce food for humans or store carbon. Yeah. There's a variety of ecosystem functions and like ecosystem services that are provided and probably more than we know. Again, back to that reductionist versus holistic mindset. Um, so anyways... Life cycle analysis, conventional beef. I'm going to keep us on track here. I'm going to be my own moderator. <laughs> so once those animals in a conventional beef operation, they go off to a feedlot. That's conventional beef that you find at most stores, here in the U.S. at least. If you go to Australia, you're not going to find feedlot beef because they don't have, commodities. They don't have commodity subsidies. Mm -mm. So the price of corn and all these other commodity crops are driven down artificially by the USDA subsidies. And in doing so, it causes that feed to be super cheap. So there's an overproduction of all of these crops. And they're like, well, what are we going to do with it? We're going to feed it to the animals. We're going to 
get them fat, you know, pump them full of corn, wheat, and soy in a feedlot. Hmm. Trying to remind you of the standard American diet and what we as humans eat and what happens. You know, we're just pumping ourselves full of the stuff that's making us fat. Yep. Anyways, the environmental uh, footprint of animals in a feedlot is just horrendous because you've got the footprint of all of that crop production, which is large monocultures. So it's just a, it's just rows and rows and rows and fields and fields and fields of a single species, which does not exist in nature. And so you've got all that bare ground between the rows, which causes the erosion and all the CO2 is leaching out of, of the soil out into the air and they're spraying all the chemicals and whatnot. But then in feedlots, you also have these manure pits that come about. And because the animals are in this contained operation, you know, they're on concrete slabs and all of that, the manure has to go somewhere because it's not reincorporating back into the soil like it naturally would, providing fertility to that land. Normally, manure is a good thing. In a feedlot, it's a bad thing yeah. because it's sitting there in this pool Ugh. and it's releasing methane into the air. And you can see those visuals, those aerials. Oh, it's so gross. Of it's so gross. Like what, um, what good... Manure lagoons. Manure lagoons, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so you have all this methane releasing, and methane is 30 times more problematic in terms of greenhouse gas emissions than CO2. Wow. So it's absolutely horrible. So a lot of people have problems with beef because of that conventional beef production. They're looking at those feedlot numbers. And according to this Which life Which you cycle, should have problems yeah, with. Yeah. Just don't get us wrong. We are all on board with yeah. problems Yeah, so with according that. to this life cycle analysis, conventional beef has 30... Th three kilograms of CO2 equivalent per kilogram of product. So 33 kilograms of CO2 per kilogram of product or pounds of CO2 per pound of product. So yeah. you get a pound of meat, you get 33 pounds of CO2 released into the air or yeah. CO2 equivalent. Yeah. That's a problem. That's a bad thing. That means when you're going and you don't care where your meat comes from and you're just buying the cheapest crap you can get off the store shelves, you are destroying our planet. Would you say that's 90% of... American's food source. I don't even know the I don't know what the statistic that. is. It is a large population. Yeah. Grass, 100% grass-fed, grass-finished is a small percentage of what people are eating, and that's a really big problem. It's 33 kilograms per one kilogram of product is yeah. effing yeah. insane. And so they go and look, and then they look at pork. Pork is a nine, so it's a plus nine. Okay. So it's not as bad as conventional beef, most likely because the, uh, the, the pigs have a shorter lifespan, so there's a piece there. Chickens are a plus six. You go to Beyond Burger, they're a plus four. So now you start looking at Beyond Burger compared to conventional beef. Like, man, that's like almost 10 times better. Uh, Impossible Burger is a plus 3.5. So that right there, plus 3.5 to plus 33, I mean, Impossible Burger is 10 times better for the environment than your conventional, conventional beef. beef. The problem is, is that those aren't our only options. And the narrative that we're hearing in the media and, you know, with like the celebrity endorsement of all these plant-based proteins is only focusing on that piece of the puzzle. And they're saying, hey, all these, realistically, they are ultra-processed GMO products. Uh, Impossible Burger is GMO. Beyond Meat is not. There is a difference there. I will acknowledge that. But the environmental footprint of these things, it's still a footprint. You are still causing degradation to the planet by eating these plant-based proteins. Well, and not to mention the health benefits, mm -hmm. right? The, the, just because, it, like, there's two conversations that I have, right? Number one is the conversation of we have to get to get the carbon back into the earth, mm -hmm. right? We have to make it yeah. 
Minimal we need to give zero ourselves or back. a chance of having a livable planet. We I'm need to so, turn back the clock. I was just Googling the ingredients to both so I could compare both. This is perfect. I printed them out for and you. And this is what I was so excited to talk to you about. This is just one example. And I'm not saying we're dogs, but I was at in St. Louis Farmer's Market um, mm-hmm. visiting my, my mom in Tower Groves. And there's this great guy, if you guys ever go to Tower Groves Farmer's Market, that does food for animals. So he started doing a bunch of food for you know, I need gluten-free, dairy-free, corn-free, soy-free for my animal. And that's how I believe, You mean too. your obligate carnivore wants to eat meat? Exactly, right? <laughs> so you're like, okay, I do want to get wheat-free. Guess what the number one ingredient is in all of these dog foods? Pea protein. Mm. They don't know how to digest it. So yeah. it's causing them so – it's backfiring. There's all these recalls. There's yeah. all these health issues that are coming from, okay, you took out wheat and corn and soy and dairy, and what else can you take? Oh, wait, pea protein's not good for my dog either. Mm. So that's just one example of like just because it's lacking something yeah. doesn't mean its replacement is any better. Yeah. Because we, we And so when you look at Beyond Meat well, – While you're talking about uh, pet food real quick, just mm. a quick plug for Zook's Natural Pet Foods. We're working with them. Because they have meat-based products Zooks. or animal, Zooks Natural Pet Foods. They're based out do of they Durango. Do they food? Probably. I would cool. guess so. Um, I don't know that for sure. But they're based out of Durango, Colorado. Um, and they are working to bring regenerative livestock products into their product line because they understand the value of That's what's amazing. truly necessary. It's not just about our own individual health. It's about our pets. It's about the planet. Like everything. I, I feed Griff. Uh, if you don't know, I have a cat named Gryffindor Hemingway. I feed him either raw red steak, raw red meat, um, or ground turkey chicken. That's like way too expensive, but I would rather- it? I don't know. It's a living being, and doesn't he deserve to live a good life? Yes, he does, and he's going to live till 30. Oh, God. Beyond beyond meat, first ingredient, water. Second ingredient, pea protein isolate. Third ingredient, this is my biggest issue, expeller-pressed canola oil. How is Beyond Meat not genetically modified? Uh, they do not have any GMO, uh, for their pea proteins. So that's my understanding. Mm -hmm. I could be wrong on this. I'm not an expert on this. I just, I know that when I've had these conversations with folks that are deeper into it than myself, they're like impossible burger has GMO beyond me does not. Okay. But I could be wrong. So, uh, letting that one go about canola oil, like the canola (laughs) oil for me is the number one thing. And this is, I'm not saying I'm the end all be all, but like for me, Canola oil literally rips my stomach up. Oh, yeah. If within seconds of eating it. It is the issue. It directly is related to... Is it all vegetable oils or just canola oil? Canola oil is the worst. Okay. Um, just for reference for people that don't know what canola oil is, it sounds nice and cute. It's rapeseed oil that they made in Canada. So they decided to name it canola oil because it was more acceptable mm-hmm. to the population. There's a video true. of... Um, Diane Sanfilippo used to... Back when she used to do seminars. I'm thinking back to like 2009... Um, I was at one of her seminars, and she shows a video from the show How It's Made, and it's about canola oil. And they thought it was like, oh, how it's made. Here, you see canola oil being made. It is disgusting. Like, the chemical baths that these seeds are going through and all the chemical extractions. It's 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 so gross. Yeah. So that was my biggest issue is, like, if you look at this from a sense of it doesn't have meat, canola oil should not be in anything. And it's not in the Impossible Burger, but the second ingredient and the fifth ingredient is soy, which yeah. is a, I mean, we have enough soy in our life. It should be, soy should be used for two things, candles mm-hmm. and ink, and <laughs> it should not be consumed by our body. So, yeah. um, okay, continue. Cause, so we yeah, got yeah. Beyond well, Burger. In, in the Impossible Burger, note that one of those soy ingredients that they have is a product that they have created themselves, oh. an ingredient 
that's called soy heme. So basically, they have genetically modified a, um, a molecule to have iron in it. So they've taken something from the root of the soy plant and they've put heme iron in it so that it tastes and looks like a bloody, juicy burger. So if you want to talk about ultra-processed food, I mean, you can't get further than this. And, that, and also, just to note, that soy hemoglobin, which has been approved by the FDA through GRAS, G-R-A-S, generally recognized as safe. So basically, that's the lowest bar. It's basically when people want to sweep things under the rug, it, gets, it goes through as generally recognized as safe and is the lowest bar of review. Impossible Foods had been fighting FDA for years about that soy heme, them claiming that it's safe. They actually uh, went out and stated on their own with a panel of experts that it was safe, like they can self-proclaim uh, that. But there, were a there was a bunch of opposition. They finally got the FDA to cave on that after yeah. years of fighting. And so if FDA has problems, I used to be an FDA reviewer, just FYI. I don't think I knew that. I used to work for the FDA. That's crazy. Also, I used to bring raw milk into the FDA every single day in my coffee. So, <laughs> you know, as you can see, I don't work for the FDA anymore. <laughs> and they got it passed. They got it passed eventually. But if there was so much resistance to that for years, that should that should be some red, red flags flag. coming up right there. Because all I care about, and I don't, if someone's listening to this being like, I truly want to be enlightened, like, this is the issue. Day-to-day -day life, where do we get our meat? Is it better to choose between a Beyond Burger at mm -hmm. Burger King and a Burger King burger yeah. at Burger King, right? Like, I don't even know if Burger King has, but they will eventually. They'll they've have they've got the Impossible Burger the there. The Impossible. It's the Impossible Whopper. So you're looking at, like, well, what can make this a date? Like, I know all this stuff, but, like, the truth of the matter is that I just want to not feel guilty about the food I eat, and I also want to give back to the world that yeah. I'm in. So I guess that's Here's where, where, yeah, the conversation, like we were saying, you know, conventional beef, pork, chicken, Beyond Meat, Impossible Burger... The conversation right now is how can I do less bad? Yes. And what people are not focusing on is there is more to it than that. You can do actual good. And you can do actual good by getting beef that has been managed holistically in a regenerative manner that is giving more to the environment than you are taking out. So in that life cycle analysis, that final piece on the graph when it shows conventional beef, 33, pork, 9, chicken, uh, 6, beyond burger, plus floor. Impossible Burger, plus 3.5. Soybeans, plus 2. Then you look at White Oak Pastures beef that's been holistically managed. It's a negative 3.5. The exact opposite of Impossible Burger. Impossible Burger, plus 3.5. So you are releasing 3.5 pounds of CO2 equivalent for every pound of Impossible Burger you eat. Or you go to the regenerative option and you can sequester, you can draw three and a half pounds of CO2 out of the atmosphere and put it into the soil where it belongs wow. with every pound of meat you eat. So when you're choosing what to eat on a day-to-day -day basis, do you want to do less bad and continue the degradation of this planet that really only has 60 years of food production left? Or do you want to give us a hope of having a livable planet into the future and actually give back more than you're taking? Mm. And that's where the true hope of regenerative agriculture lies, and we need to expand this conversation. Everyone that's like, meat's killing the planet. We need to talk about the nuance there and say, conventional meat is killing the planet, 
And by, by ignoring regenerative agriculture, we are throwing the baby out with the bathwater and ruining it for those that are actually giving us hope for the future. Which is exactly what that says. Yes. That, that is the this only thing This graph cannot be more that. clear. This is third-party study done by Qantas International. And you know what? Impossible Burger came out and attacked Savory Institute uh, back in June. Basically, they came out with an environmental impact report, and they said that regenerative grazing is BS and blah, 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 blah. It costs, you know, the, the amount of land that's necessary to raise cows and the amount of water that's necessary. It's not good for the planet. Therefore, eat our processed crap. The firm that did their life cycle analysis was the exact same firm. Qantas International is the same firm that did Impossible Burgers. So when I say that plus 3.5 for Impossible Burger, that is an exact number because it's the exact same firm that studied Impossible Burger as studied White Oak Pastures. It is an apples to apples comparison by someone who is unbiased. Mm -hmm. And so they came out trying to attack Savory Institute and the regenerative movement, I think because they realize that regenerative grazing is a threat to their whole marketing ploy, their whole concept is built on a lie that the only option is to move, that all cows are killing the planet. Yeah. And it's no, it's not that all cows are killing the planet, it's that conventional livestock are killing the planet. And yes, you can do a little less damage by moving towards these ultra-processed GMO things, but you can do even better, doubly better actually, by moving to, on to the regenerative end of the spectrum. So I had a very, um, I wrote a very strongly worded um, rebuttal to that when they came out and attacked Savory Institute. Because normally, you know, we try to be inclusive, abundance mindset, you know, understand that people come from different places. You know, I have many vegan friends that I have more in common with most vegans than I do with the general public. You know, the average Joe is very apathetic to where his food comes from. And that's where you get the conventional beef production. People just want the most convenient, the cheapest. The fastest. And, and that's where the problems come in. Mm -hmm. Someone who is choosing not to eat animals because of moral reasons or because of health reasons or because of environmental reasons, whatever information they, are, they come to the table with, they at least care. And that's where I can relate to people and say, hey, I see you. You care. I yeah. respect that. I love that. Let's, keep, let's focus on the 80% we have in common, and then we have 20% that we disagree upon because we come to the table with different opinions and statistics well, and it's, sources. It's interesting, too, is if you're not curious and if you, because of this marketing, I mean, it's, I, if I didn't know what I knew about food, I would also be on this train, right? Yeah. And it's the same, we mentioned passion over paycheck, but it's like you, people are choosing passion over health, mm -hmm. right? I am very adamant about not eating these proteins and this is the alternative but when you understand like when you get a little nauseous or you bloat or you feel a little crampy after you mm -hmm. eat that food that is not health any bloat is a sign of dysfunction oh, in yeah. your body and yeah. that isn't just an inconvenience it is literally what's connected to your neurotransmitters it's what's connected to your immune system it's what's connected to the way you show up in the world and that's mm -hmm. why for me, the Body Awareness Project is like by far like that is the it's understanding what your body is actually doing yeah. because there is very little unbiased media and nutritional advice given unless there is an incentive. Mm -hmm. And it's, so it's funny. 
I'm, I'm seeing the correlation between, you know, so the body awareness project, being able to, to read what's happening in your own body just so that you're aware. Because when you're aware, you're going to make better decisions. You're at least going to know the, the reality of what yeah. you're existing in. When we go out and teach holistic management to people, um, you know, I was just out in Kenya teaching uh, folks out there. The first, it, we do a nine-day course. The first two or three days is all ecological literacy and reading the land. And so it's really an ecological awareness project mm. that we have. You know, th that. The first step is really just understanding what is it that you're seeing? Because we operate with these blinders on that you were saying of like, oh, on my day to day, vision, I got to do this. Well, yeah, we, we are creatures of habit. You know, that has, um, you know, conveyed a lot of uh, evolutionary protection along the way so that we don't have to make all these small little decisions. Mm -hmm. So we, we get into habits, you know, we like those, but in doing so, our blinders are on and we are losing all of this feedback that the environment is trying to tell us. Your body is trying to tell you, hey, I don't like this stuff you're feeding me. The land is trying to tell you, hey, I don't like the way you're treating me. I don't like the way you're only planting one species of crop. I need some biodiversity out here, man. Yeah. I don't like the way that these cows are out here grazing nonstop. I need a break. I need to rest after this hard workout. Like, it, the first step is that awareness. And then once you can truly see what is actually happening, and we are so disconnected. You know, we are the most ecologically illiterate society that has ever existed. Like, you think back to hunter-gatherers. Not even ecological, like, <laughs> feminine, like, the amount of like, The illiteracy of all the, all, un, all it, the underlying it processes. It could not be about our sexual function, about our brain, about yeah. our stomach. Uh -huh. No, I mean, it's just, it is so, we are slowly We just need to wake the fuck up. We need to wake everyone up. <laughs> okay, we just need, we need to start giving psychedelics to everyone. Everyone will just like <laughs> become enlightened. They'll understand the interconnectedness of everything. Their hearts will open. They'll move towards that abundance mindset. We will bow down <laughs> to Michael Pollan. I'm, I just, <laughs> <laughs> this is the most important question that I have. Where do you get your meat? Where do people get their meat? Mm, so Depending many on where they're at. Yeah. Let's start quite literally with Colorado. I would love to put names in. I would sure. love to, sp I mean, I, any company that you can think of, yeah. the, my podcast for you guys listening, there's nothing that you're going to learn from this unless it's this part, because yeah. when we're choosing, you know, passion over health, it's like, okay, well, where do I go now? What, yeah. what is the next step yeah. with this knowledge? The reality is, is that it's not easy to find regenerative agriculture in the store. When you go to the store right now and you look at a product, you compare it to another product, how do you know which one was raised regeneratively? You know what's grass-fed, you know what's organic, you know what's non-GMO, what's fair trade, what's animal welfare approved, mm -hmm. but what speaks for the land? Currently nothing. So we're coming out with uh, a program, it's actually uh, rolling out right now, Epic has one product on the shelf that has the label, um, it's their Beef Sriracha Bites. So if you go to Epic's websites, if you go to their website and look for the Beef Sriracha Bites, they have a seal that says Ecological Outcome Verified. That means that we measured the health of the land and that land improved over time. So we're not just saying, hey, go out and do these practices and if so, trust us that it'll get better, that this is the best thing for the environment. We're actually reading the land because regenerative implies something is getting better over time. So we're just measuring. Um, so, you know, data to back all that up. There's more products coming out into the future. Epic's got two new products that'll probably be hitting shelves in January, beginning of 2020. Um, beef liver bites and also their pastured pork lard. 
Um, so those will be two new products and more into the future. We're working with a lot of other brands. Um, Rep Provisions, if anyone's heard of them. They're a new yep. company. They were like the favorite child of Paleo FX this year. It's like beef sticks and nut butter. Those all have that ecological outcome verified. Um, that Funny, that brand was actually started by two savory hubs, our hub in Oklahoma and our hub in Missouri. They got together to create this brand. Where so, is it in Missouri? Uh, he's in the Ozarks somewhere. Oh, cool. I don't know. I visited a few months back, but I honestly can't tell you the name of the Ozarks town. Ozarks area. Yeah, uh, cool. I, I can get you plugged in. But So when you're looking at like... The Whole Foods has the welfare label one to mm-hmm. five, right? Is yeah. that anything? They're, is it they're gap. Uh, gap, fi- gap four and five are good. Gap one to three, I'll admit, they don't really mean much. Yep. Um, so if you see, if you're going to buy beef, at least get gap five. The thing is, though, is that isn't really speaking about management of how those animals are moving across the land and is the land getting better. So really the only thing that I know of is the ecological outcome verified uh, seal. I know that the Rodale Institute also has a regenerative organic seal that um, they're working on. It's not currently on any products, but that'll be something to look for if you Do see you it. Do you suggest then, if the, until that becomes more prevalent, buying a quarter of a cow? Yes. And so, in? yeah, that would be my main recommendation. Of course, I had to plug Savory's program as the first thing because that's for what sure. we're doing. And that's and, super exciting. Yeah. And and I hope that that rolls out and more brands get involved. If you work with a uh, brand that has livestock, please reach out to us. We'd love to talk. Um, but yeah, the other thing to do is find your local Savory hub. We've got 43 of them around the world. And reach out to them and say, hey, I'm interested in buying beef or lamb or goat or whatever it is that they raise or other farmers that they've trained in the region. Because hubs, savory hubs, aren't just farms themselves. They are learning centers where farmers and ranchers in that region come to learn better practices, and they get that support through the savory hub. So if you go to savory's website, www.savory.global, we have a map on the front page. All the hubs are there. All their contact information is there. You can learn more about them and reach out to them, find who's in the area. Um, in Colorado, for example, the local hub is out in Gunnison, the Cold Harbor Institute. They work with Bill and Kelly Parker of Parker Pastures. Bill and Kelly are awesome. Um, they, like, I quite, I need to buy meat. So okay. I'm like, this is perfect. In, in the front range, so Parker Pastures, mm-hmm. they have been managing holistically for a long time. And they distribute, um, they work with a company called um, Pastures. Oh, shoot. I'm so sorry to the brand that I'm blanking on. We'll put it in the, the show notes. Um, but anyways, there's a brand that does like a meat CSA sort of deal, like where they deliver to your door here oh, in the front range. Um, and, you know, there's there's options like that all around. So call your local hub, reach out to them. They'll put you in touch with folks. Also in Colorado, there's the James Ranch out in Durango. Um, you know, like I was saying, if you live on the East Coast, chances are White Oak Pastures, the, the farm that we were talking about, all this data, They distribute through Whole Foods. Most of the grass-fed beef at Whole Foods on the East Coast comes from White Oak. Um, There's there's so many different options out there. You just need to do a little bit of research. And so I can, um, I've got a little thing written up of some other farms and ranches that we can like plug into the show notes. You know, resources to use. There's another website, um, eatwild.com.org, that talks uh, that has a map of grass-fed beef producers. So that's not necessarily saying that they are managing holistically or regenerating, but it, it's at least a step in the right direction. You know, if you don't know the management, at least go 100% grass-fed. That's the bare minimum that you can do. Perfect. Yeah. Oh, man. We have lots of work to do across the board. We do. You we know? do. 
but I think this is a good conversation. Lots of tangents. I hope you guys are still with us. Uh, I have so many random notes on my papers. Let's I'm go. Like, what do you got? What's on? Well, what's the top of the, what's top to of mind? Say was the, for sure just a shout out to the kind of talking about plant medicine yeah. and the separation of when we try to extract. That's why I'm so obsessed with Ned CBD because it's full spectrum. So mm -hmm. that was the conversation that yeah. we had. They were in the gym and doing samples, um, but it means it's going to. They cannot verify it won't show up on a drug test. That's like the biggest question. Yeah. If it's not isolated, which is what is happening with CBD-infused coffee and yeah. CBD-infused this and that, it has to be fully extracted, and I just think it loses its mm -hmm. intelligence. So shout out to Ned. It's interesting, though, the, the plant medicines. You know, you're seeing right now with, um, you know, things like MDMA and psilocybin, mm -hmm. which are magic mushrooms, and, and others, they're getting fast-tracked through the FDA approval process for things like treatment-resistant depression, you know, folks with PTSD, you know, coming back from war or other types of traumas. And the FDA has never seen any type of medication have this level of efficacy with no known side effects, no known uh, dosage um, that could kill someone. There's been no deaths on any of these. It is... Versus it, 50,000 deaths of opioids. Yeah, exactly. It's... They are it's almost like these are these miracle drugs that are coming out, even though they've been around forever. You know, you look back at, so, all right, here, I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent. We're going to go back in time, 66 million years ago, big meteor hit in the Yucatan Peninsula. Sky turned black, it rained lava and ash, killed off 80% of life on the planet. We did not have any vegetation, we had no life. Eventually, what happened is grasses started to regrow. When grasses started to regrow, it started to suck CO2 out of the atmosphere that, hap that you know, was at these insane levels after the meteor struck and killed all the dinosaurs and everything. It started to suck all the CO2 down into the grasslands. It allowed the grasslands to start to form. The grasslands don't just exist on their own. They also have this worldwide web of mycorrhizal fungi, of all this fungus that exists. It's mushrooms. this mushrooms. And so what existed since the beginning beginning essentially of our time life. Uh, on, on life on this planet as we know it today from 66 million years ago, fungi have been a very critical factor. And so fungi have sprouted up all throughout grasslands of the planet. Shout out to the grazing animals that kept those grasslands uh, in balance as well. <laughs> and so you look at human populations that have existed all over the planet and you have had people taking psychedelic substances of some sort in some capacity based on what was appropriate for their localized context, where they were taking magic mushrooms and using it in a ceremonial context of understanding what the planet is trying to tell them and what their ancestors were telling them, or uh, you know the Lakota people doing sweat lodges or people doing rhythmic dance sessions. You know, There's all these various ways that people have tapped into expanded states of consciousness as a way of trying to understand the interconnectedness of this planet, mm -hmm. and in doing so, it gives people this appreciation for the world around them, and it makes them more empathic and understanding and a better steward of everything around them. And so, populations have been taking psychedelic substances longer than we've known. They have always done this, and it's kept them in balance with the environment. And we've kind of, all of these hunter-gatherer tribes or, you know, the old tribes that, that don't exist and all these cultures that have become westernized and bastardized as time has gone on. They've lost these traditions. 
And in doing so, we've lost that connection to nature and that interconnectedness. And you see, like the studies are showing that when people take psychedelics, not only is it helpful in terms of resolving traumas like PTSD, but it also, um, people report feeling more connected with nature, more connected to their yeah. fellow man, and just being more responsible people and better people on a day-to-day -day basis. And not even, that's, I mean, that's why I created a tea company. I mean, I'm obsessed with uh, what herbs are, can do. Are, is there psilocybin even, in your tea? I will be the first to do that. But <laughs> Denver no. did decriminalize psilocybin. Decriminalize is still but very it, far away from being It is consumer. the first step. Denver was Friendly. also the first one to decriminalize cannabis. Yep, so, but, and it took about six years yeah. from where we're at. So six years, you need to six ramp years. up that tea company, Em. <laughs> so I feel, for me, you know, it's the population of, like, understanding plant medicine mm -hmm. as far as psychedelics. Plant medicine that are growing in my yard, lemon yeah. balm, sage. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating what herbs can do and what they can shift for you. Yeah. There's a reason that I'm obsessed with flower essences. There's a reason I'm partnered with Herb Farm. It's like they're, yeah. when you especially, like if you guys are interested in plant medicine in a non-psychedelic form because it helps open you up to being like, oh, that I guess that kind of makes sense because it is a scary, terrifying world. 100%. Especially if you grew up in Missouri and <laughs> you grew up in a, a church, right? Especially you, if you grew up in this era. Yes, yeah. you just, un, it's hard to shift that. And I think the easiest thing, it's like, well, don't, we don't even need to go there to mushrooms and psychedelics, even though I'm a huge fan. But what about mushrooms that aren't psychedelics? Yeah. Reishi and how incredible mm. reishi is to calm our nervous system. Uh, we look at cordyceps and how it can increase our ATP production. We look at yarrow and how it can help empaths and highly sensitive people understand that there's protection from them and the world. It's like when you cannot shift things in yourself. I mean, I literally go into my yard every morning and I like pull things off and I smell them and I, mm -hmm. I have never felt more connected and more grounded. Yeah. And, and here's the beauty of it is that they are probably providing so much more than you even understand. Like, you know that you feel better when taking these things, when you have them in your teas, and when you have the, the full plant versus taking just the, the, the individual component Extract. that has been extracted out of it. And going back to that holistic perspective, there is far more going on there than we will ever know. And yeah, we'll learn as time goes on. But if you just appreciate and honor that those plants have value, that they provide something to you, that nature provides more value than we understand, and that we can't control it, we can just honor it and do the best we can to honor it. Oh, it's I a beautiful know. thing. That's our slogan. Nature has all you'll ever need. And I think what's interesting is that's why I'm such a believer in people like, yeah, I'm not just saying this, but like Herb Farm and Ned, because they don't just take one part of the plant. They combine the parts of the plant because yeah. the root is going to be different than the leaf and the leaf is going to be different than the flower. Sure. And there is not very many people that understand the dynamics of even within the same spec the same species the same specimen mm -hmm. the same unit yeah how different each variant can be and that is when the magic happens and it's hard because there will never be studies for energetic shifts but that's what we're talking about it's like you can only see physical manifestations and yes there's some changes and, you know, most people will be like, well, it's probably placebo. Who gives a fuck if it's placebo? Placebo effect we, is still an effect. It's a very real effect. Yeah. And it's also because they're not – how can you put tangible evidence on something that is energetic shifts? Yeah. I just don't think – It could be that energetic shifts, like perhaps we just don't know the right way to study that yet. We, it, that is just the unknown. And so maybe we just respect that there's, there's more out there. Yeah. We don't know what's happening, but – 
to think that we know everything and just because you can't measure it means it doesn't exist. I think that's human hubris getting in the way again. Yeah. It happens Ugh. in so many places. There's like so many other things I wanted to talk about and I'm trying to <laughs> think about that. Oh, 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 actually one I think is important. The argument, because pe- when we were talking about all like, oh, cows, good, bad for the planet, I know the argument's going to come up of, well, cattle require so much land. You know, it causes so much, it, it requires so much land to raise a cow. The argument here, I think, is a very important one to understand the nuance. Because when you're talking about crop production, what you're doing is you're taking natural wildlife habitat, a wild ecosystem, and you're exchanging that for food production. You're saying it's one or the other. You either can have the habitat or you can grow crops. When we're talking about livestock growing on grasslands, and grasslands are uh, a habitat for so many different species. I was out at our bison ranch yesterday, and there were uh, pronghorn antelope, and mule deer, and white-tailed deer, and porcupine, and bison, and all kinds of birds, and prairie dogs, and just like all, there's all sorts of beautiful things that live in this area. We're not deferring wildlife habitat to replace it with cropland production. The food production that happens in a livestock production coexists with wildlife habitat. So even though it may take X number of acres to raise, you know, to raise a cow in this area, that doesn't mean that that acreage is lost for the value that it provides mm. for wildlife habitat. And so that's just one that it, it kind of irks me when people are like, well, cows take this much land. And I'm like, ah, that's a different conversation. We're ta- it's an apples and oranges thing. Yeah. You're, you're taking over wildlife habitat or you're improving wildlife habitat that can coexist. I was just, I know I'd mentioned I was out in Kenya. They are grazing animals out there with the Maasai people, which are traditional pastoralists. Everyone owes cat, owns cattle out there. That's just how they have existed forever. They're livestock people. That's where they hold their value. Um, they are, they've brought the Maasai communities together so that instead of different herds that exist that are all competing for grass, now they operate as one large herd. They all still own their individual animals, but they have a communal grazing plan. That's cool. So instead of competition between each other for grass, now they've got cooperation. And in doing so, it's allowing the land to rest so that after they graze it, the land recovers, the grasses regrow, the land gets better. Since they've started doing this, they saw their uh, first Impala come back in 2010. Now I was out there just a few weeks ago. I probably saw thousands and thousands and thousands of Impala. Also zebras, elephants, giraffes. With the pre- with the prey water comes buck, the predator. lions, cheetahs. Like there's <laughs> leopards there. That's the one thing I didn't see was leopards because they they hide in the bush. But uh, like they are using livestock as a tool for regenerating that ecosystem, and in doing so, the wildlife have come back. And so I've got pictures of. Maasai herders herding, you know, like 800 cows, you know, they're just walking around with their sticks. And then in the background, there's zebra and impala and, you know, uh, also, you know, water, not water buffalo, and cape buffalo. And behind that, hopefully a lion. And lions out in the background. <laughs> yes, quietly waiting, saying, hmm, what do I want for dinner tonight? Oh, I love so lions. it doesn't so have cool. to be an either or, mm-hmm. it can be a both and. And I oh. think that's what we need to understand. 
Bobby, this is a great podcast. Definitely one of my longest, and we Uh-oh. have so many more things to do. I love it. We could do this again. We'll definitely do it again. Thank we you so much for quick plug. Um, Savory, we have a membership program going on. So we are a nonprofit. So we can't do this without the support of people who care about this stuff. So if you care about this work and you want to see us expand this to more people, more farmers, more land around the world, get more sources of regenerative beef out in the supply chains please consider a small donation to Savory on a monthly basis, you know, five, 10, 20 bucks, 100 bucks, whatever you can afford a month. We greatly, greatly appreciate it. And there's all sorts of perks that you get, like a t-shirt, access to our online learning platform, like all sorts of things. So if you go to savory.global slash member, you can become a member of the Savory Institute. And I know like five bucks seems like a little amount, but a lot of people contributing a little amount really goes a long way for us doing this. So if you appreciate this, savory.global slash member, we would yes, greatly of course. appreciate I'll link it. Yes, of course, that below. That's awesome. Bobby, thank you so, so much. Thanks, Em.